someone much wiser than myself told me to stop doing that because the reality is if you're a sustainable business, you're not going to really have much an impact on anyone's life. Um, and that what we should be doing is aiming to become a, a generative business, one that generates social impact and profit because without generating profit, we can't generate social impact. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Toxic Fox Show and this is episode number eight. I'm Diana Barnett, your host, and each week I invite conscious business owners and entrepreneurs who give a damn about sustainability, ethics, health and wellness to have a conversation and tell their story to inspire you on your journey and to connect you with like-minded people. This episode is sponsored by sevencanaries.com.au. Today, my guest is Nick Savides, the founder of Etico. It's a clothing company and Ginter Sports. It's a sportswear equipment company. Both are ethical brands committed to fair trade, traceability and sustainability. In 2013 and 15, Etico ranked with the highest score in the Australian fashion report, The Truth Behind the Barcode. We'll have a link to the report in the show notes. What's really exciting is that the 2016 report is about to be released and when we know the results, we'll let you know just how well Etico performed this year. If something Nick says today inspires you, please let him know on Twitter at EticoFairTrade using the hashtag TFS or you can leave a 90-second audio message on the website, thetoxicfoxshow.com. And we will respond. If it's relevant, we'll include your question in future episodes. I started the show by asking Nick why he gave a damn and where his interest in fair trade came from. Um, I guess it's a number of factors. It's a combination of uh, having a strong, strong empathy for other people, especially with people who the um, underprivileged, the uh, the underdogs. You know, I've, I suppose it's my family background. Um, I think looking back on my childhood, you know, my family come, you know, struggled uh, financially when I was quite young and uh, I saw the kind of stresses that put on my own family. And, um, you know, I don't like seeing that other families or other people going through the same kind of stress. When I was uh, quite young, my mother worked um, as a machinist, uh, you know, sewing garments and she worked from home. So... Um, I saw the kind of amount of work she had to do, the you know the little amount of money that she was paid, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's something. I mean, the the exploitation of other human beings is something that has never sat well with me, especially when you know indirectly we benefit from those kind of practices. You know, the idea that we can buy cheap stuff simply because you know someone else is in some other part of the world, or even in Australia, is being ripped off. Right. My question then is, if we go back again, is what inspired you to start this business? Um, so, so going back, your mother, you saw her being—I don't want to use the word abused, but um, yeah, well, she wasn't being compensated properly for the amount of work that she was. But that she wasn't the only person. There was uh, no, no. Most of the, so we were living in uh, Thornbury at the time when I was a young kid uh, in in primary school and. Uh, most of the mothers uh, work from home as machinists, and yeah, you know, I remember this van used to come around every Monday and uh, drop off a big bag of fabric in a lot of the homes, and you know the mothers would spend their day, you know, whenever they could squeeze it in, sewing garments, and you know the following week that same van would come come back and pick up the and the ready the completed garments, and then uh, you know leave some more fabric for them to sew up, and I remember. You know, she was being paid anywhere between 15 and 20 to 30 cents per garment. But one time I was in the city, there used to be a shop called the House of Maryvale and Mr. John. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're aware of that shop, but it used to be in Collins um, in little, in Collins Street. Yeah. And yeah, you used to go down, downstairs and it was probably the, the fashion shop um, at the time. Um, it was a cool place to buy your, your gear from. And, you know, I'd see my mother's, the stuff that my mother and other women in our street had made for, you know, forty, fifty plus dollars, and I couldn't work out. You know, how come my mum and these other women were being paid so little, and uh, these garments were being sold so much? I mean, I wasn't aware of the uh, the concept of uh, profit and uh, margins, etc. Yeah, it didn't sit well with me, but I didn't know what to do about it as a kid. 
but yeah, later on, I became, you know, I was interested in social justice issues when I was at high school. And then I came across uh, the New Internationalist magazine. I started reading that in high school, uh, the latter, latter years of high school. And I kind of realized that exploitation wasn't just restricted to workers in Australia. It was actually an international trend. So I used to go in, especially when I was at university, I used to go into shops and ask the retailers or staff if they had any idea whether the people making the products they were selling, whether it was footwear or clothing or even sports gear, whether those workers were being exploited. And man, most retailers, most staff had no idea or no no interest in knowing how their products were being sourced. So how and, did you, yeah. I was going to say, how did you go from seeing that? Because how old were you when you saw that T-shirt? Um when I saw the my mother's stuff, yeah. uh, being oh, would have been in um, year six primary school, so I would have been about twelve years of age. Okay, but you know, um, yeah, for years, I mean, I was aware of these kind of issues, but I had no idea what to do. But when I graduated as a, a teacher, high school teacher, I used to talk to kids about the impact of globalization, and uh, we'd look at issues such as child labour and sweatshop labour, and the kids would get really upset, um, especially when I show videos or show them photos of you know child export, child labor or sweatshop labor. But then they still turn up to school wearing the very brands they were doing it. You know, it was pretty well documented which brands uh, in the early 80s were using child labor. Um, people like uh, Oxfam and Save the Children were doing a lot of work on um, raising awareness of that, those practices. But yeah, as I said, the kids were turning up to school wearing the very brands that were being highlighted. And, you know, we used to sit in the staff room um, talking uh, about exploitation with my teacher colleagues and, and everyone would agree it was really, you know, that, you know something had to be done. It was, you know, it was a really evil example of uh, multinationals exploiting the poor unfortunates. But then this, you know, what do we do as teachers? You know, what choices were we making? And I'd ask the sports department if they had any idea where their sports gear came from and none of them did and they really didn't care either. So I thought, you know, nothing was going to change unless kind of consumers change. So the people who do the buying actually start thinking about how they uh, get their gear. But then again, you know, I didn't do anything about it apart from just being aware of it. But in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, I managed to uh, get a job as an adult educator on, re- on a remote Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory in a place called Yundamu. And uh, I was meant to be running literacy and numeracy programs, but uh, when I got there, People based on the community were saying, "What's the point of you know doing these courses if there's no jobs?" So you know we had an agreement that I actually help create jobs on 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 this community and other communities. You had the agreement yeah. with the, the, community. the community itself, right? Okay. Yeah, and, prior and my, prior to going, no, no, no. It was when I got up there, I yep. spent about a month or so just getting to know people and seeing what their needs were, and um, you know I was given the opportunity to set up what's referred to these days as social enterprises. All the projects we set up were actually owned by the communities uh, for the community benefit. So we set up everything from a community laundromat to a video conferencing network and uh, you know, quite a few other businesses in between. But one of them, in one particular venture, which was I put a lot of time and effort into, was a business called Urumpy Crafts which involved sourcing designs locally, uh, Aboriginal art, that we printed onto T-shirts. Because at the time, in the late 80s, early 90s, if you went into Alice Springs to buy a T-shirt with an Aboriginal motif, there was no way it was actually printed by uh, people on Indigenous communities. And even the artwork there was that was questionably sourced, uh, there was plenty of examples of non-Aboriginal people designing Aboriginal art, which they were then sold on to print onto T-shirts. So we thought, why not actually set up a venture on a remote community where the community uh, art, local artists would do the designs and then, and other people, or if, even if the artists themselves wanted to print them, they could actually print them onto T-shirts as well. And uh, yeah, we set up, you know, I set up that business together with a, another gentleman on the community, um, one of the locals. Yeah, we started selling the T-shirts locally on the community and you know, people were pretty stoked to uh, see some of the local designs being available in their local shop, but then we spread it further and we started selling it, selling those T-shirts through stores in Alice Springs, and then uh, eventually um, Community Aid Abroad, which became Oxfam, put in a really large order, and uh, we started selling them through uh, Oxfam's catalogue as well. So how long did so, that process take you? Probably about a year and a half. Okay. 
but it was a great it was great training for what I'm doing now. Yep. Um, and a lot, of, you know, some of the contacts I developed back in the late '80s, early '90s. You know, I've still, you know, I still keep in touch with them and still work with them as well. So yeah, so and then that's kind of real. You realize that you know, business doesn't always have to be a bad thing; it actually can be a positive thing. So I saw the positive aspect of what we were doing on the communities. It was actually creating employment in an area where there was no employment. It was giving people confidence and pride because they were actually seeing the result of their labour. Yeah, and uh, when I, I did that for about five years, I worked on remote communities for about five years and. When I came back to Melbourne, I went back to high school teaching for a, a while, a couple of years, but wasn't enjoying it. And, uh, you know, I was keen on developing my own business, but one that had some social impact as well. Mm-hmm. And I started off by marketing the No Sweat brand. I'm not sure whether you recall that brand, but it was actually the world's first ethical sneaker. Right. Um, I introduced that in uh, 2003, 2004. And where did that come from? The No Sweat brand was uh, set up by a group of activists in North America. Right. And the sneakers themselves were being produced in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And we were working with a guy called Jeff Ballinger, who was basically the guru of the anti-sweatshop movement. He's the guy who exposed brands like Nike back in the uh, 80s. Right. And uh, he was kind of directing us with our supply chain. And uh, he found a factory in uh, in Indonesia and Jakarta that he felt was up to the standards that he was looking for. And, uh, you know, I managed to pick up the distribution rights for Australia and New Zealand. And uh, we did quite well. But after two years, I felt, you know, I wanted to create my own brand rather than distributing someone else's brand. Yep. So in 2005, at the end of 2005, I introduced uh, Etico Fairtrade Sports Balls. And then, you know, and the brand has developed since then. Okay, so you've got now you've got four brand or four websites. We've actually got two brands. So Etico, which is our fashion brand, and we also have another brand called Jinta Sport. Right. So so originally under the Etico brand, we were marketing everything from sports balls to sneakers and t-shirts. But we were finding that uh, sports clubs and you know, schools who buy sports gear weren't taking us seriously because they didn't see the link between you know. Well, they couldn't work out why a fashion brand or a, a sports brand would also be selling a fashion gear. Right. So we decided to split the brand. And uh, I chose Jinta um, because it's actually uh, an Aboriginal word. It's actually the five years I spent in the Northern Territory where I'm uh, living with uh, people from the Walpuri tribe, uh, the Walpuri, the largest tribe of the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I asked friends in the community what you know, would be a good name to use for a sports brand. And uh, Jinta means winner or number one. Okay. So we thought, yeah, that'd be a good uh, name for a sports brand, and uh, it's yeah, proven worthwhile because uh, our sales actually picked up after we changed to the Jinta, you know, to the Jinta brand. So Etico is a dedicated fashion brand. It's a street fashion brand, basically very s- straightforward clothing that people wear on a day-to-day basis, like you know, sneakers and underwear and t-shirts. In the next few months, we'll be introducing uh, hoodies and even socks. So it's basic kind of garments. So it's not a high-end fashion brand. All the products that we sell are made from organic cotton and uh, the footwear is made from organic cotton as well as uh, FS, um, sorry, sustainable rubber, which you know, comes from FSE certified forests. So on that point, how do you actually source the materials for your products and how do you ensure that they are ethical and they are organic and et cetera? So we rely heavily on accreditations and um, accreditations that are actually credible accreditations. And we were the first non-food company in Australia to be certified fair trade by the Fair Trade Label Organisation, FLO, um, which is the same label you see on coffee and some chocolates. It's hard getting fair trade accreditation through FLO, and it's harder to even keep it. But all of our suppliers are fair trade certified, so we work with the uh, an organic farmer cooperative called Chetna Organic, and uh, they were the first cotton growers to be certified fair trade. And the factory that makes our garments is actually part owned by the farmers themselves. So, and the farm, the factory itself is part of an accredited fair trade supply chain. We've put a lot of effort into getting accreditations, and that's put us in good stead because, you know, things like that Australian Fashion Report acknowledge the difference between what we're doing and what other brands are doing. And, you know, the reason why we get such high ranking, um, we're the only company to get A plus in the Australian Fashion Report two times in a row. 
Now, we discussed the fashion report earlier on before we came on live. Can you just explain to the listeners what the fashion report is about? It's a report put out by uh, Baptist World Aid plus a couple of other NGOs, um, in, and they set it up in response to the Rana Plaza tragedy, the factory in Bangladesh that collapsed about three years ago. You know, everyone was pretty shocked about what had happened, and uh, Baptist World Aid, together with Not For Sale, put together a report, invited, I think it was around the time, it was about 140 brands to share their information about their supply chains. And uh, the 140 brands were ranked from, they were all given a ranking um, you know, from A, uh, F to A+. Plus. Yeah, we were the, in 2013, we were the only company to get an A+, plus for our supply chain. And uh, the reason why we got good scoring, I got such a good score, is we could actually map our entire supply chain. So it's not just a matter of knowing that the factory that we work with is, you know, work, you know, the workers are treated ethically, paid, you know, living wages, uh, working in safe conditions. Um, it goes back to as far as where the cotton seed came from. And um, from what I recall, they said that uh, we were the only company in Australia who could actually prove that they actually were paying workers living wages. So that report came out again this year, and we once again we got an A plus. Though this time, another company who shares our supply chain also got an A plus. Right. Yeah, the report was coming out every two years. Now it's going to be annual. So you know, we're starting to prepare for the next one. Uh, I've just come back from a, a trip visiting our suppliers and also meeting with potential new suppliers, and you know, just gathering um, information about the impact of the work that's happening on the ground. I rely heavily on accreditation because we're at Edica, we're a pretty small team. I don't have a, a huge team of people to go out and do auditing for me. So we you know, work with accredit um, so credible third parties to verify any claims that we make. So with the organic uh, aspect of our products, we rely on, on certification by GOTS, which is the Global Organic Textile Standard. Mm -hmm. um, I also work with Fairtrade USA. I'm actually working with a factory now to get them certified by Fairtrade USA. Yeah, you know, we've you know we've been doing this for quite a few years now, and um, you can't just rely on spot visits. Um, and you know, I've met quite a few people in the fashion industry who've told me they've been taken on tours of factories in Asia, and they're shown the good part of the factory, and then it turns out that if you go behind the scenes, it's a completely different experience. That um, you know people often put on shows for visiting customers. Yeah. So that's why I rely on NGOs. I mean, in Pakistan, where we work with sports ball producers, and you know, we also work with an NGO called IMAC, uh, International Monitoring Authority Against Child Labour. Mm -hmm. They also visit our suppliers and you know, do spot spot inspections. But you know, the main one for us is the Fair Trade Accreditation by Flow. Now, as uh, fair trade and ethical purchasing becomes uh, more popular. There are a lot of, sorry, there are a number of other accreditations popping up, but the reality is that they're all kind of uh, fair trade light. Um, their standards aren't as uh, rigorous as the flow fair trade accreditation is. Right. It's almost it's seriously diluted. And, and some of these accreditations kind of allude to being ethical, but when you scratch the surface, all they're doing is guaranteeing the absolute minimum. Um, there is a another accreditation out there which sounds familiar, similar to fair trade, but they don't guarantee that workers get paid a living wage. All they're doing is guaranteeing that workers get, get, are getting paid a minimum wage. Right. And okay. there's a world of difference between a minimum wage and a living wage. Uh, in uh, Bangladesh, for example, the um, the minimum wage there is $38 uh, a month, and but if the living wage is around $115 a month, there's a significant difference. So- if you're using the living wage and you're going down, how competitive are you in the marketplace with your pricing and things like that? Well, we're not we're not competitive against sweatshop products. I mean, right. the reality is that you can't sell a t-shirt for five, ten dollars, whatever some of the brands are doing, without exploiting someone in the supply chain. Right. But we can, you know, yeah, for a, an ethically sourced t-shirt, I think a price of twenty-five to forty dollars is quite reasonable. And uh, yeah, we're you know, there's plenty of uh, um, non-ethical brands selling their t-shirts for that kind of price, and I've seen some sweatshop t-shirts being sold for fifty plus dollars, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, they're, they're making a significant margin. Uh, 
I've actually gone to some uh, occasion you go to see a band or whatever and you see the T-shirts being sold for $40, $50 for a, a T-shirt that you know they wouldn't have paid more than 2 or $3 for. Yep. So you know, we can't compete with that kind of stuff. But, so you know, who do you t- compete with? Um, well, for our example, our sneakers, you know, our sneakers are the same price as the best-selling sneaker in Australia. Yep. Our underwear, which we're now selling, sells for around $20. Our, our T-shirts sell for 25 to $40. Our hoodies are going to be selling for around $70. So it's the better quality mainstream brands, I suppose, they're the ones we're on the same price as them. Right. So we'd like to tell people that our stuff is not expensive. It's just the same price as equivalent quality stuff. Right. So our T-shirts, though they are more expensive than the really cheap and nasty ones, they are better quality as well. So we've sold over 120,000 T-shirts since we started, and we've only ever had two returns. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's pretty good uh, quality. Yeah, we're pretty proud of the quality. And what I mean, we're trying to create not only the most ethical brand in Australia, but and I think we've proven that we've we've done that. Um, we're also trying to create the most sustainable fashion brand in Australia by creating garments which are, uh, have the minimum possible impact on the environment. So that also includes making garments that last. And it's not always, it's not easy doing that, um, especially with footwear. You can't, it's a real challenge making an eco-friendly uh, shoe, which is going to last as well. Uh-huh. But that's another story. <laughs> so if you're talking about that, who does your design? Well, we send to stick to classics, uh, you know, with our, you know, with our f- range of products, there's, there's we don't have an in-house designer. Um, we stick to kind of, you know, a t-shirt's a t-shirt, uh, a pair of sneakers is a pair of sneakers, thongs are thongs. We we do our source. We do find kind of local artists who give us some designs, but there's no one in-house. Um, right. And it'd be great to actually one day be able to afford to actually have a fashion an in-house fashion designer who can come up with uh, not just illustrations, you know graphics to go on the garments, but also come up with some new cuts, new styles that we could uh, make use of. But um, that's um, what we're aiming for. Um, We've kind of proven that you can create an ethical supply chain in fashion, and we've proven it over and over again. Now what we're trying to do is take the brand to the next level, which is, you know, take it into the mainstream. And in order to do that, we're, we're trying to raise some serious equity uh, from investors who can see the potential of what we're trying to do. And uh, not just in Australia, but internationally. And you know, once we've found that kind of those resources, then we want to build a team up and find people who've got the skills that we don't have at the moment. And that includes fashion design. Yeah. So how, if we can come back to going down the investor trail in a minute, just going back to who's your target market? Who, who are the people that actually buy it? Typical. Um, sure. Well, we'd like to think our target market is anyone who gives a damn about how their uh, garments are sourced. I'd even say, um, you know, everyone who wears clothing is our market. But the reality is that um, only a small percentage of the Australian market really kind of makes the effort to apply their values to their purchasing decisions. Yep. Uh, you're probably familiar with the LOHARS report, yep. the Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. Um, if you follow that report, they basically say there's about 5 to 10% of the Australian population who put their money where their mouth is who you know, go out of their way to find an eco or ethical alternative. Yep. So how do you reach those people? Well, um, yeah, by attending a lot of sustainability events. I mean, I think that's how I met you first time. Uh, we met at some sustainability event. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But you know, doing a lot of presentations, uh, displays. So that's how when you don't have much money to spend on marketing, that's the way you get your message out. Nowadays you have social media, so – yeah, that's been a bit easy to get our message out. But, uh, you know, after doing this for a few years, I mean, I can't help but notice that there is a pattern in the kind of people who are buying our products. And it's largely a female skew, uh, a young female skew, so 18 to 30-year-old females are uh, our biggest market, and they tend to live in the inner, inner suburbs of Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. Right. But either side of that, you know, we've got younger people who don't necessarily give a crap about what we're doing, but they like the look of the brand. Yep. And then we also have an older demographic who don't necessarily wear T-shirts or sneakers, but they like what we're trying to do. Yep. And they'll buy for them, for their kids or for their grandkids. Um, but definitely a, a female skew, you know, tertiary educated, passionate about sustainability and social justice. And that's been the trend across fair trade as a whole. I think uh, whenever I've seen your research on fair trade sales in Australia, it's, it's a very female skew. 
Right. Okay, so you're reaching through the going through exhibitions and festivals and things like that. How do you make those work for you? Yeah, um, I think uh, people who know me realise that um, when I do festivals, I tend to make an effort to engage with everyone who walks past. I don't like the, I mean, I've, I've gone to quite a few events and I find it amazing how many um, people who exhibit at festivals just sit behind a table and just wait for people to come to them. We try to create display stands and uh, which engage with the audience and get people to stop and talk to you. So I'll often, you know, stop, I stand in front of our display and also the people I, I employ, I expect them to stand in front and kind of, you know, pass out information, just you know, make statements like, you know, help stop child labour and, you know, screw the brands that screw the workers and anything to get people to stop and talk to you. Right. And, you know, 90% of the time it works, you know, 10% of the time people just walk, keep on walking on. But I think we've created the mo- the best known ethical fashion brand in Australia and doing by doing things like that, um, we're engaging with a large audience that we've managed to build the, the brand up. Uh, I find it amazing that people will pay, you know, thousands of dollars to set up a display at a festival and then just sit behind a table and just, you know, sometimes they often put their heads down and <laughs> like as if they don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah. But yeah, I've been doing that. I've been doing it for a few years. I've actually, I'm actually doing a lot less festivals now because we're finding that social media is working um, pretty good for us. And, you know, in terms of return on investment, you know, it seems yeah. that you're better off spending the money on the social media rather than doing festivals. But I mean, I like doing them. Um, I like doing festivals because it engages with the audience. You get to hear what people are thinking and you know, give you a bit of customer, you know, product feedback or, you know, any feedback about the brand. And it's also good for networking. I can't believe the number of times we've picked up large orders just simply by talking to someone at a festival and, and even you know meeting journalists, um, you know, we've met quite a few by attending festivals, and yeah, you know, we're featured in a few high school textbooks, and now I think there's about four or five of them of featuring us, and I'm pretty sure that most of them have come from someone I've met at a festival. Right. Yeah. So there's a, a trick that uh, some of you, my listeners, might be interested in. So when you're at the um, festival, I know you run competitions and things like that. How do you follow up with people afterwards? Well, firstly, we don't uh, follow them up unless they ask us to, if they don't kind of give us approval to actually follow them up. Yep. But basically, we ask people if they'd you know, like to join our mailing list, and uh, you know, about 60 70% of the people say, yes, we do. Um, so they give us permission to you know, market to them. Um, but I also have a bit uh, a more detailed uh, form that uh, if someone wants um, some specific information, um, whether it's pricing or uh, more educational material, I'll, I'll get their details and then follow them up, you know, within a week or two after an event. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think I could have got my business to where it is if I hadn't done festivals. So, But, you know, we've done things like the Sustainable, Sustainable Living Festival 10 times, I think, and, the, you know, Fair Trade Fiesta uh, festivals about five times. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been a long slog and hard. it's hard work, but it's been worth it. Mm-hmm. What are the biggest challenges that you've met along the way? Yeah, okay. Uh, there's, there's quite a few. Um, you know, we've got the same challenges all small businesses have where, you know, we're seriously under-resourced. You know, I don't know too many small businesses that have got a huge amount of resources and unless they're making huge profit margins then – because, we're you know, if we were making huge profit margins, it might, it might be a bit easier to, you know, bring on more people or, you know, sell our stuff cheaper, whatever, um, but we don't. But – um, the main, suppose, when I first started, I thought the main challenge I was going to have was developing the supply chain and to be able to prove that it's kind of all above board and meets our standards. But the biggest challenge has been getting individuals and uh, organisations to apply their their values to their purchasing decisions. So I thought by creating the most ethical brand in Australia that everyone would embrace us, that, you know, not just individuals, but, you know, schools would, you know, come to us to buy their sports gear or their school uniforms, uh, that, you know, NGOs that uh, promote sustainability and social justice would come to us for their merchandise and government departments that talk about ethical purchasing policies would uh, would also embrace us. But there's this huge gap between what people and, and organisations say and what they actually do. Uh, you'd be shocked to see how many organizations and there's actually one uh, government-owned media organization that is, I think uh, yesterday kind of was promoting some ethical um, app 
for you know, for consumers. And I was thinking, well, what about that organization itself? Um, where do they source their merchandise? And I know it's not ethically sourced. Yeah. So, um, and there's just, you know, we're all good. We're, we're all good at talking about ethical. There's there's way too much talk about ethical consumerism and way and not enough actually application of that. Do you those th- kind of values. Do you think part of it is because there isn't everyone has their own definition of ethical? Yeah, and also people often um, see some accreditation which sounds like it's good, but you know if you actually scratch the surface, it's not, and they'll accept them. You know, on face value rather than actually scratch below the surface. But also in consumers' defense, I suppose, and the individual's defense, it's it's actually hard to buy ethically made merchandise. I mean, you can't just go to a major shopping center and buy ethically sourced clothing, for example. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I live in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, um, southeast Melbourne in um, Juan Turner, and our closest shopping center is Knox City. I mean, there's no way you can actually find anything at Knox City which has been ethically sourced. Yep. Uh, so, you know, in defence of consumer, but yeah, we also have retailers telling us that they're not convinced that consumers give a toss. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, then you know, but all the research says that people do. So I mentioned the Lohars report, and they said about five to ten percent of the Australian population does care and prepared to make the, make the extra effort to pay for it and go look for it. But that report also said that about 30, 40% of the Australian population shares those kind of values, but doesn't want to pay much more or go to go to a, effort, a lot of effort to find these kind of products. So, so that means about 40 to 50% of the Australian population does care, but we need them to actually tell the retailers that they care and that they do want an ethical alternative. And they, and you know, the schools that talk about social justice and sustainability. And there's not one school in Australia that doesn't talk about sustainability or social justice as part of their curriculum. Mm. But they don't apply those values to their own purchasing decisions. I mean, there's plenty of kids running around in school uniforms that contain elements of child labour or sweatshop labour. Yep. There's plenty of kids playing sport at school, playing with balls that have been stitched by young kids. Uh, you probably recall about three or four years ago, uh, three years ago in the Australian, in the Age, uh, Age and Sydney Morning Herald, there was an expose of Australia's number one Aussie rules brand using six-year-old girls in India to stitch balls for the Australian schools market. Have they changed their behaviour? Yeah, they have. But, you know, it took uh, front-page exposure on the age for them to do that. Yeah. And those practices have been happening for years. Yeah. Uh, and the, the schools were the, you know, the schools market, the people who were buying cheap sports gear were the main beneficiaries of those. Yep. Um, yeah. But, you know, those balls are still out there. I mean, they're still... You know, schools, and it wasn't just that one brand. There were other brands. So, you know, in uh, rugby league, there was a rugby league brand um, using the same supply chain about two years ago. Uh, a major netball brand was actually caught using child slavery. Right. Uh, less than four years ago and uh, just about three months ago, uh, a court. So they, the, the netball brand sued producers of a documentary, uh, HBO, uh, the US-based uh, television network, uh, made a documentary on the use of child labour in the sports industry and uh, a major brand which sold both netballs and soccer balls, actually they're the second biggest seller of netballs in Australia, was actually implicated in a supply chain which was using child slavery. The brand sued HBO. The court case went on for years and then about three months ago, the judge came up with a decision and uh, yeah, the sports brand was implicated and uh, yeah, lost the court case. You, yet you'll find their sports brand, their nipples in every school in Australia. You're talking about brands that are exploiting. How are you raising awareness yourself in that area? Sorry. Yeah, I've attended lots of festivals and- um, no, yeah. no, I mean, in education, are you doing other, using other, what other strategies are you using to do that? Um, as in, you, you've got the festivals, but are you actually going into schools yourselves and talking to schools or is that because your lack of resources, you're not able to do that? Um, when I first started, I actually, and I still get asked to um, give presentations at schools and universities quite often, and I was getting lots of invitations initially because I, I wasn't charging anyone for that. I thought if I did that, it would help raise awareness, and then they would get the school or the university to start looking at its own purchasing. But then I kind of realised that uh, the schools were quite happy to use us as a free resource and weren't, and weren't necessarily going to make the change. Right. So then we started uh, charging schools 
for me to do those presentations. And I still do that, but now we charge them. So if they're not prepared to make the change, at least they're still you know, compensated for the work that we're doing. Uh-huh. Um, but, um, yeah, we've made a policy now, unless the school's prepared to pay for me to do a presentation or prepared to commit to buying um, some of our products, then, yeah, I can't do the presentation. And we, the bottom line is we're a business, we're not a charity. Um, you know, we don't get um, donations from anyone. We can only operate by making profit. So, um, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I do get interviewed quite a bit and, um, you know, I think uh, the ranking and, you know, the awards that we've won, the, um, you know, the Australian Fashion Report um, certainly raised our profile and it also has made more people aware of the issues that we're kind of tackling. And, you know, I think we're, we're showing by example that you can create an ethical supply chain. Um, I think that's helped raise awareness of those kind of issues that we're tackling as well. I mean, I think a lot of people were shocked to see that we were the only one of, so in the 2015 report that we were only one of two brands who can guarantee that their workers were being paid living wages. I think that was confrontational for a lot of people. You're listening to episode eight of the Toxic Fox Show with Nick Savides, the founder of Etico and Ginter Sports. This conversation is sponsored by sevencanaries.com.au and I'm Diana Barnett, your host. So going back to that, you said you're a business. What is the business model that you have? Are you a social business? Are you... Yeah, I like to tell people. You know, I, I tell people that we're a for-profit social enterprise, right? Because um, I can't. And I, when I first started, I told people I wanted to create a sustainable business. Um, but then someone much wiser than myself told me to stop doing that because the reality is, if you're a sustainable business, you're not going to really have much an impact on anyone's life. Um, and that what we should be doing is aiming to become a, a generative business, one that uh, generates social impact and and profit. Um, because without generating profit, we can't generate social impact. So the bigger we grow, the greater our social and environmental impact as well. So, um, yeah, but the, the reality is that, uh, yeah, my accountant, my accountant would have a laugh at that statement about being for profit. <laughs> so, uh, we are making a small profit. Um, but as we grow, uh, then, you know, we, we can make more significant profit. I mean, uh, the, the, the majority of our social impact is in our supply chain. I mean, um, there are other business models out there where their idea of social impact is you know, giving a percentage of their profit away, um, but then they still use questionable supply chains. Right. Yep. Um, you know, some of them pay their managers quite significant, and then you know whatever little profit there's left over they share. I like to take the other approach, which is to make sure that the people who work in our supply chains um, get compensated properly for their for their labour. Um, that the farmers who supply us with our raw materials get paid, compensated for their labour as well. And then, um, you know, we do share also some of our profits. So, you know, with our Ginter Sports brand, uh, 2.5% of all our sales go into funding sports programs on remote Indigenous communities mm-hmm. um, through products like our Not For Sale T-shirt, which is, I'm not sure whether you've seen the T-shirt, but it won the Australian Fair Trade Product of the Year last year. Um it was a fundraiser for the Not For Sale campaign, which is an anti-human trafficking campaign. Mm-hmm. And we gave 10% of all our sales to funding that campaign. Right. Our thongs for good, you know, help raise money for different environmental, animal right, and human right groups. Yep. So, you know, we do give back, you know, some of our profits, but, you know, our main social impact is in our supply chain. Uh-huh. And um, so if you go back to right at the beginning, you were saying that your looking um, for investors. Can you tell us about the process that you've gone through to become investor ready? Well, we go through the process at the moment. Um, so you're probably familiar with that investment ready program that NAB and Donkey Wheel have put together. So um, we've, uh, we're applying for one of those grants to get us investor ready. Mm-hmm. I've put together an advisory board of people a mixture of people with uh, business experience as well as social enterprise experience. And uh, we have to hope to have a prospectus ready by about uh, March next year. And, uh, you know, we'd like to, you know, we're looking for, we're looking at, we're trying to decide whether we should go for individuals who 
you know, who might have a significant amount of capital who'd like to invest in us, or the other alternative is to use the crowdfunding model. I'm not sure whether you're aware that there's some proposed change to legislation which would allow businesses to raise equity through crowdfunding. That uh, would or wouldn't? They will. Okay. At the, moment, at the moment, you can't sell shares or equity in, in a business through crowdfunding. You can only sell products. Right, So, yep. uh, But legislation's in place to enable enable businesses like us in the future to uh, raise equity through crowdfunding. But we're looking at both options. But at the moment, you know, we're keen on talking to people who can see the potential of what we're doing, not just in Australia, but internationally and, you know, like what we're trying to do and want to, and want to help us grow. You know, we're keen on finding people um, who've got skills that we don't have, you know, anyone with a fashion background or a marketing background um, that would kind of be helpful as well. I mean, um, we're happy looking, happy to talk to anyone who can see, uh, who share our passion for, you know, doing good while, you know, trying to generate profit. So if you go back to the board, how many on your board and how did you choose them and how often do you meet and are they a board of advisors or are they mentors? How does that work? Um, it's a combination of advisors and mentors. So uh, we've got one gentleman who, was the chief financial officer for a, a major publishing company, and he's been a mentor for me for about two years now. Um, but um, the other gentleman, we've got uh, someone who's uh, got a significant advertising industry background. He's come on board about a month ago, and he's been helping us and trying to help us uh, rebrand and update our marketing material. Mm-hmm. And uh, third a person who has got a background in social enterprise who worked in the fair trade area. And we tend to meet once a month at the moment. I think that's plenty of, uh, that's that's frequent enough. But we are looking for someone with a fashion background to join the board uh, as well. Um, So if you know anyone who's got a background in fashion and a passion for social justice and sustainability, uh, we'd be happy to talk to them as well. So when you meet, you this is just if you want to, if I know if someone wants to set up a board. So we we tend to meet in the um, the village, you know, the NAB's village, that uh, yep. little hub that they've created. Um, that's kind of pretty central for a lot of the for the people on my board. And though the advertising guy is from Sydney, so uh, we tend to Skype him in. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, you meet, and then you have a is it a form? The format is fairly formal, and then you no, fo- it's pretty casual at the moment. But it was going to have to become more formalised as as the business grows and as I get more resources. I mean, it's hard to make things formal. We don't have the resources to do that. Yep. Um, but it's something we need to, especially if we do raise some equity. Um, we're going to have to be a lot more accountable to uh, to other people. Yep. At the moment, uh, the only person they need to be accountable to is myself. But as we find investors, we're going to have to be accountable to others. So, yeah, it will mean, it'll mean have to become a lot more formal in the way we do things. Yeah. Basically, I get told this is what you need to fix up and then I go away and try to address it and then answer to them in the, the month after. Right. But it's not very formal at the moment. And how on a giving away some of your equity, how does that feel with you? Well, um, there's the reality that for, you know, for the business to grow, I've got to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not a control freak. Um, I just want to make sure that we do the job properly and that the business does continue to generate profit and continues to generate social impact. And as long as the you know, the investors respect that, um, then there shouldn't be an issue. But I, as, long as, I, as long as I have some kind of role, you know, I'm keen as kind of keen to support the brand. I mean, I've been doing this for nearly ten years now, and um, you know, I like to see it go a lot further than what we've managed to achieve. I mean, in the past, you know, the first few years of of Etico was basically developing the supply chain and trying to get our story, you know, work out what our approach is going to be. And when we first started, no one had heard about fair trade, so we were the first non-food fair trade brand. Yep. Uh, and at the beginning, it was hard enough to explain to him what fair trade was, let alone what a fair trade fashion brand looks like. I mean, people were struggling with the idea of fair trade coffee for quite a while, and that's only become mainstream just more recently. And so now the next step has been to get people to realise that fair trade is more than about just coffee and chocolate. That it also applies to sports gear, to clothing, to footwear. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't ha- have an issue with letting you know, sharing or letting go of control of the business as long as the people who respect the integrity of the brand 
and you know, our mission. Yep. And and will help us you know, take a, to grow it not just in Australia but internationally. So, what's been happening recently is I think as a result of those awards and that you know, Australian Fashion Report accreditation um, ranking, is that we're getting a lot of inquiries from. Uh, other countries, um, you know, I'm getting emails from Canada asking me why we, we even, why we haven't introduced the Etico brand there. We've we've started making sales in Hong Kong. I just couldn't believe, but we've actually been making repeated sales in Hong Kong now. I was in Singapore last on the weekend and uh, met with a group of um, fair trade advocates who are keen to raise awareness about fair trade and use Etico as an example of a brand that's doing it differently and doing it properly. Uh, we, we get good. lots of uh, sales from Euro- Europe, um, especially North Northern Europe, and you know people are asking us why we haven't introduced the brand there as well. But the, the reality is we can't unless we actually got, have greater resources. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think you only get one chance to do it, and if you don't do it properly, you, know, you shoot yourself in the foot. So, yeah, you know, I want to get the resources together to set up a distribution point in Europe, and another one in North America, and another one in Europe, because it's crazy to ship products from. So Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka to Australia, then you know back to you know yep. to Hong Kong. So it's more logical to supply straight from the, to the areas that we we want to distribute it from. Yep. So and that's going to require a lot of capital. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then you need to develop marketing material which is appropriate to those local markets. Yep. Yep. So that, well, it sounds like you've got some people on board to help you with that. So when you're measuring metrics, besides your your accountant does your Financial, <laughs> but what other metrics are you? Do you use to well, um, see your yeah, impact? I rely, I rely heavily on what the fair trade label uh, tells me. Uh, so, but um, what we're trying to do is get the resources together to create more detailed reporting of of the impact of what we do with that, and not just rely on the fair trade label to confirm what we're doing. Etico is basically made up of three people. Right. And where well, we don't have anyone kind of focusing on measuring our impact. But you know, we're keen on finding uh, people who are interested in maybe some students who are looking for you know, work experience who are interested in looking at uh, our impact, uh, happy to work with them in that area as well. Right, yeah. So does the fair trade give you, um, say, okay, by using fair trade, you allow so many students to go to school rather than work within? I mean, this T-shirt allows you to... Fair trade doesn't allow any child labour. No, so, so yeah, yeah, so by using fair trade, you know, for every T-shirt that you buy, means that there's more kids that go to school. Is there any metrics like that around? I'm not aware of any, but basically, what fair trade is saying is uh, that accreditation guarantees is the workers are being paid a living wage, and they you know, they do look at that. This is the Fair Trade USA accreditation, so they basically guarantee that the workers are being paid a living wage. It also guarantees that the workers are working in a safe in a safe environment, and their audits done on a regular basis to make sure that's the case. And you know, there's um, under the Fair Tr- Flow Fair Trade accreditation, there's the Fair Trade Standards for Hired Labour, and there's it's a pretty detailed document, and you know, the the factory has to abide by those standards. There are some measurements of impacts of fair trade coffee, et cetera, but they haven't done it to cotton as yet. Right. They actually, uh, actually, I think they're working on it at the moment. So, yeah, in the next few months, there should be some um, report on um, the impact on the ground of fair trade cotton yep. and fair trade sports balls, which is another thing as well. Uh-huh. But as a company, we don't have the resources to do that. Right. Yep. We are, you know, one of the things we want to do when we raise equity is to be able to do that ourselves. Yep. Because we'd like to think that we're doing things beyond what the fair trade label requires us. Yes. So I don't have lots of different suppliers. You know, I've got one supplier for sports gear, one supplier for cotton gear, and one for footwear. Uh-huh. So, you know, I've had long-term relationships with all those, with those three organized companies. And, you know, I go uh, visit our supply chain on a regular basis and I – you know, not only meet the management, but also meet the workers. And I've got to know quite a few of the workers over a long period of time. Some of the farms, I actually go to the to the actual farms, and I actually go to the people's homes in their in their villages, and um, been able to get feedback straight from the uh, from the producers themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they're not. It's not a workers' paradise. It's not. It's not as if they're living in the lap of luxury, but it's helping them achieve some of the things they want to achieve, which is you know. To be able to send their kids to school to you know improve their quality of their lives, 
And yep. when I, whenever I go there, you know, the, the producers, the, the farmers and the workers in the factory are always keen on telling me about what they want to use their fair trade premiums for. Mm-hmm. So in the past, you know, in Pakistan, the workers have had a microcredit program running. So, you know, they've been able to borrow money to set up their own small businesses and it's interest-free loans that they they were able to access to. But about three years ago, the workers decided that to benefit more people, they wanted to set up a fair price shop. Right. So uh, what that meant was that uh, the workers would set up their own shop in a building which is right in front of the factory where our sports balls are produced. And they set up a food co-op basically which would buy food at wholesale prices and then they would add 5% to the cost mm-hmm. and then on sell it to the workers and their immediate families. So that reduced the cost of food by about 40%. Right. In an area where prices were going through the roof because of flooding in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. But that was an idea that came from the workers themselves. Right. So with the fair trade premiums that we pay, it it, it makes sure that workers are being paid living wages, but also goes back into supporting the communities with, you know, what things they want to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, that, that part is measured. You know, we, you know, we, as part of our fair trade accreditation, we have to show the social impact of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So the auditors check that as well. Mm-hmm. And we've got other projects in, with our suppliers in India and Sri Lanka as well. So with that sort of in mind, just moving on, what advice would you give to people starting off now? You're 10 years down the track and you're- Well, we get approached- Probably every couple of weeks by some organisation, someone who wants to set up their own ethical brand, yep. and you know we are actually helping a lot of them, you know, develop brands or you know, products for them. But you know, there is a few ethical brands out there. It's not because uh, an ego thing, but I don't think the world needs more ethical brands. What we need is for those ones that are out there, and there's quite a few out there. We need them to succeed. Yeah. So I'd be encouraging people to actually start working with other brands rather than going out and you know setting up their own because you need a lot of resources to to create a brand and it's a lot more strength of people working together i know most of the ethical genuine ethical brands in australia and the genuine ones are, are few and far between but i know most of them and i know most of them are kind of under-resourced mm-hmm. they could seriously benefit from having people with you know other resources to come and join them um, and we're one of those businesses. So by all means, if you really want to go ahead and set up your own ethical brand, you know, talk to people who've done it for a while. If you're looking for verif- accreditations, make sure they're uh, credible ones. Don't go down the path of using the dodgy ones because down the track, it's, they're gonna, you know, it's gonna be, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot anyway because uh, when the truth comes out, it's going to look pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. I'd stick with so credible accreditations like F- Flow for the fair trade part, FSC for the uh, if you're using anything which is paper related or wood related, um, GOTS for the organic cotton part. Mm-hmm. But you know why not actually look at working with some of the existing brands that are already out there? Right. So that'd be one thing I'd sort of encourage people to do. Uh huh. Anything else? Uh, do your homework or, uh, before you start because. It's one thing that I did. I just jumped straight in. Um, mind you, I did have some background in ethical fashion because of the work I was doing on Aboriginal communities. Um, so I suppose I did have some basis there. But I think the, I, my business could have benefited from me doing a lot more research before I started. But the problem was when when I started, no one had really heard about fair trade. No one had heard about fair trade, let alone ethical fashion. But I think it's, there's a lot more information out there now. So you know, using reports like the Lohar's report that we refer to. Yep. Um, you know, using the resources of Fair Trade Australia, uh, uh, that'd be another thing. There's a lot more resources out there now than there was when we first started. But just be aware of that gap between what people and organisations say and what they actually do. So you can't expect people to buy your product simply because you're doing good. Uh, you need to give people more than just this feel-good story about being ethical. You've got to give them kind of good quality because – you know, if people buy your products and they find that they're dodgy, they're not going to come back again. Make sure they're you know, good design as well. I mean, uh, people aren't going to buy your products if they look ugly or don't sit right. You know, try to make it affordable. Um, the reality is that if you do make a, a, an ethical product and you price it too high, your, your market's going to be very minimal. Mm-hmm. So one reason why Etico's done reasonably well is because our products are affordable. 
And so our sneakers are the same price as, you know, the mainstream sneakers, our thongs, our rubber thongs are the same price as, you know, mainstream thongs, et cetera. Yeah, so don't kind of price yourself too far out because, you know, you can have a limited, very small market if you do. So besides doing research, what would you have done differently if you were starting out now? I suppose I would have put together a, a, a team of people rather than kind of trying to do it on my own. Uh, yeah, and I should have done that a lot earlier. Since just recently, we've started bringing on people who have experience, uh, work experience, and and that's had an impact on the business in the past where I haven't been able to afford people with experience, and I think that held us back for quite a while. Yep. But, you know, I need a lot more with, a lot more people with a lot more experience as well. So I'm not saying that I've got to where we want to be, but yep. I think yep. uh, I would have uh, saved myself a lot of stress if I'd actually found people with skills that I required earlier mm-hmm. rather than just um, run the whole operation of, on a smell of an oil rag and hope that it will come together. Finally, I just wanted to ask you, what's one person who has inspired you, be they alive or dead, and why? Uh, there's a guy called Peter Toyne who uh, I'm lucky enough to be related through marriage. He married my cousin, and he was my boss in the Northern Territory. Um, I didn't get the job because of him, <laughs> um, because I did actually have to go through interview process with the education department up there. But he was the adult educator on the community before I got there, oh, a few years before that I got up there, and uh, he showed me that what you know if you've got the the drive, the will, and you can actually find the resources to make things actually happen. And um, he spent 30 years working on remote Indigenous communities, and uh, he sacrificed a lot uh, to to do that, uh, mm-hmm. but it had a huge impact on the people on the communities that, you know, so much so that they ended up voting for him as their local parliamentarian. Right. And his wife, my cousin, they they sacrificed a lot to make a, a difference to people's lives. Yep. And totally unselfish. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Amazing guy who I'm proud to say that I've known you know, since I was a young kid. Okay. And uh, his brother was actually Philip Toyne, the former director of the Australian Conservation Foundation. And, uh-huh. You know, was Runs the, in the family. Uh, yeah, and the legal advisor to the Mutajula community that uh, when they got back to Uluru, uh, Amazing family, and you know, I've known both of them since I was 12, 13 years of age. And uh, I suppose they, they kind of made me aware of the potential of what's, you know, what things you could do if you actually had real passion for what you're wanting to do. Yep. And, and sticking to it. So, yeah. Mm. Well, on that note, everyone, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. And really- a pleasure, Diana. And uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about our work and also um, to raise awareness um, about our brand and fair trade as a whole. And appreciate the work that you're doing um, in raising awareness about organisations like us and about the, the need for you know, a different approach to doing business. Yeah, well, I'm really passionate about bringing businesses together that can are making a difference and learning from each other. Yeah. Yeah, so if anyone wants to contact me, our website's etico.com.au and uh, you know, our email address will be there and we've got a, we're pretty active on social, oh, I say pretty active, we are active on social media. So if our um, handle of Facebook is Etico Fair Trade, and same handle for Twitter as well. So Okay, I'll put those in the show notes. Them. Yep, appreciate okay. it. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening to the conversation with Nick Savides, the founder of Etico and Ginta Sports. You'll find links to their social media and websites on the show notes. Using these links, please share the insights that inspired and motivated you. Some insights I took from the show. Get yourself a team. Not having resources will hold you back. Work with others. There's strength in partnerships. When you go for certification or accreditation, Go for the one with the most clout. Although it might be harder to get, it'll give you and your brand the most credibility. And if you've got the drive and the will, you will find the resources to make things happen. Well, it's time for gratitude. As always, my gratitude goes to Vince Jones for the music, to the team that helps me pull this together, to Nick for coming on the show, and to you for listening and subscribing and reviewing our show. Thank you. Till the next episode, thanks to all the awesome business owners and entrepreneurs out there. 
that give a damn.